in Gaza, Israeli tanks are pushing further into the southern city of Khan Yunus as its deadly ground assault continues and Palestinian casualties rise. The few functioning hospitals remain completely swamped with an influx of injured people, many of them children. The WHO called the assault on Gaza, quote, humanity's darkest hour. At least 16,200 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed since October 7. The UN's top humanitarian relief coordinator said Israel's attack in southern Gaza has been as devastating as in the north, with the apocalyptic conditions preventing the delivery of aid. Some 85 percent of the Gazan population has now been displaced. We suffered from the war of cannons and escaped it to arrive at the war of starvation. Now we cannot find food. We make the food by ourselves. We divide one tomato between all of us. There is no safe place. They finish off one place at a time and only God knows where we will end up. How can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you I know that you're self-censoring? I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. You don't go to poor countries to make money. I mean, up the Philippines are rich. Brazil is rich. Mexico is rich. Chile is rich. Only the people are poor. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. You get a lot of killers while you think our country's so innocent. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. You're not You're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem. But there's billions to be made there, to be carved out and be taken. It's been billions for 400 years. The capitalist European and North American powers have carved out and taken timber, the flax, the hemp, the cocoa, the rum, the tin, the copper, the iron, the rubber, the bauxite, the slave, and the cheap labor. These countries are not underdeveloped, they're overexploited. Let us be together and recognize another world is possible if we come together to understand the power we've got and achieve that decent, better society where everyone matters. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. We are the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So. That's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that. He's deflected from the actual argument at hand. What I try and do is be fair about Trump. What you do and to no one is else. be relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party because I'm literally a communist. Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. And as the mole of history returns to the surface once more, we're here. I'm Tom. And I'm Fred. And you're listening to The Tunnels, a podcast by The Mole, which you can support at themoleworld.com forward slash support. This week, uh, we're talking about Israel's crimes against humanity, which is a subject that 
is obviously extremely relevant right now and yet has been going on for nearly 100 years and which no doubt everybody listening um, we can definitely say for ourselves has been really difficult to immerse ourselves in over the last weeks the date of recording is 25th of october uh, but we're not exactly sure when we'll be posting this so obviously it's a ongoing uh well a constantly changing picture yeah yeah i thought we should mention that because no doubt like that even the figures and stuff is going to be ballooned by the time it comes out whatever the case yeah i've been trying to keep track of like i was in trying to have the most up-to-date stats but they literally change significantly every day yeah and so you know if this isn't going to be out for at least a week or maybe two maybe three and that's as long as this this war has been going at this stage and then we're kind of every day they're they're talking about a possible ground invasion and multiple other sort of situations which could completely escalate what's going on so yeah like a a good point of comparison for the sense of scale is in ukraine the estimates are that nine thousand civilians have been killed since the war started um, which was about two years ago and in the two weeks or so of this conflict, around 6,000 Palestinians have been killed. So that's the scale of like the speed of just mass death in the, in the two cases. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the footage I've seen in the past couple of weeks coming out of Palestine um, has been deeply scarring. Yeah. Yeah, it's like basically this, this event as it's currently unfolding, it's probably the worst political event on the planet in our lifetimes. And yeah, we were saying before how paying consistent attention to something like that for us, like particularly to record the podcast episode and things is very emotionally difficult in a way that uh, hasn't been the case to that level before for us. Um, So you have to kind of just hold a lot of like nightmarish things in your brain for a long time. And if you think like how bad that is even and that level of removed from the situation, uh, the experience of being on the ground in it. Like we can't fully understand it, and I think that that's that also kind of mediates people's relationship to the media as well, in the sense that like they can quite easily imagine being like in a music festival, like the Israeli citizens were on October the seventh. But it's quite difficult to to imagine living in a concentration camp that's constantly being blown up, basically. Yeah. Um, in the West. Yeah. So, um, before we, I mean, it's kind of difficult to I know. sandwich the more podcast updates in with that introduction for those that are listening as the episodes come out they'll notice that there's been a break yeah and yeah when you're doing the intro i was like i remember this i've listened to this <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's been a break in our recording and the part of that is to do with the fact that it is so demanding to to do these episodes i mean our intentions for these first episodes have been to really provide overviews of quite intensive and important subjects and the prep that goes into the episode followed by the editing and then also the fact checking making sure that things are correct before we publish turned out to be a lot more than i mean we sort of wondered uh and i think you you were (laughs) saying to me like are we going to be able to do this and i kind of i'm always like yeah we can do it um but yeah uh the reality was that it was it was very draining um we were always like pushed up against the the final like days i was like doing the the edit in the final days like in the podcast bunkers (laughs) yeah which i kind of enjoy and to be honest i do that to myself so you know who knows what the what what (laughs) will happen with that moving forward but i kind of um always force myself into a corner with deadlines um yeah and then i guess my uh chronic illness is also a factor in terms of 
deadlines like the uh kind of unpredictability of how well i'd feel compared to how well i'd like to feel to do the episode justice um also over this hiatus has been a big part of it and also just life stuff like um and like being abroad briefly and various things yeah well we we went to the world transformed in liverpool yeah which was uh and that's in fact um over october 7th uh yeah we were we were like it was ironic that we were the least plugged into international news whilst we were in person at a political event (laughs) so that actually happened whilst we were there and we didn't really know what it was or what happened yeah someone mentioned it quite like not in passing but like kind of it left us to go look up what had happened yeah yeah uh, and just for context, the, the World Transformed is um, like a fringe conference beside the Labour conference, which was in Liverpool. Um, and it's like the, the further left wing kind of group that have various events that we've been to before in Brighton. Yeah. I mean, when we were in Brighton, it felt like it was a lot more obvious that there were people that were going to both. Yeah. And and that was obviously the intention of, of them being like side by side. But this time I didn't get that impression at all. And it wouldn't surprise me yeah. if it was a lot more separate this time. Like I mean, You're right, yeah. yeah. Because it was it was a lot more like tension, wasn't there, in terms of the Starmer project of, was quite new and like what it was hadn't been fully metabolized by everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was there was a vote about like proportional representation and stuff like in that first one. Mm and i can't remember like maybe it passed or something and it was only then that we yeah. were starting to see the fact that like things that pass aren't happening anyway yeah, yeah. and yeah like, it's yeah. been passed it's got to happen now yeah it's like no yeah <laughs> yeah um so we've done a bunch of stuff and then i mean uh, i'm sort of life-wise have been juggling things with moving and whatnot so it has been manically busy in that interim but we've also realized that moving forwards to cater for things like your illness and the amount of work that needs to go into the episodes that we're going to shift to a different rhythm we're going to do one a month we're going to get the episodes out more reliably that way and then um we've got plans for how we'll start to add new things to that but the first thing is getting our stride with with these monthly episodes yeah and we'll, we'll have like some updates on previous topics coming we'll get more stuff coming out on the youtube channel and the website and oh and we're together in person right now for the first time recording yeah yeah <laughs> so so who knows what the uh, the quality of the audio is going to be like what's going on so we'll find out but it's good to be in the same room and uh yeah exciting that we'll be able to do this now so i guess before we move on to the main body of the episode just to say that you can um you can find the rest of our content including the youtube videos that we've already done ways to support us and there'll also be a way to subscribe to updates to make sure that you sort of hear from us as soon as we know what's happening and what's next and when we post new content you can find all of that at themoleworld.com and for those that are already subscribed just a big thank you um you're making it possible for us to do these things making it possible for us to go to places like uh, liverpool and take part in some of these events and we soon sort of hope to bring some more on the ground reporting from those sorts of places exciting i mean the the audio that you heard at the very beginning of the episode was actually recorded with this new portable recorder that we've got which will make it possible for us to capture more of that content and that was that was recorded on the first march for palestine two weeks ago now um we're hoping to go to the next one see if we can and i guess just to nicely wrap up what we've already said i think it's only just about now that you were saying that the the stats on people listening to the episodes have sort of started to plateau so that's a good indication that 
the, the the content that we're producing needs to be consumed at a slightly slower rate anyway um, so hopefully that works better for everybody anyway so it's difficult to know where to start um, we're recording on the 25th of October three weeks after the massive increase in the genocide of the Palestinian people yeah and so much context that needs to be put in place in order to be able to have a meaningful conversation about what's going on so we've decided to do this in two parts uh, which we actually weren't aware we were going to do when we sat down to record this and we're going to do the first part so we're going to do as much history as we can in this first part and then we'll move on to discuss the second Nakba, the current war in part two. So I guess if we're going all the way back to the start, would you say that's the Balfour Declaration in 1917? Or... Yeah, because I guess I guess it in the Zionist version of events, you would go back to like biblical times, but that's kind of like the, there's um that's a political decision in itself. Whereas like the kind of modern conception of Zionist movement specifically kicks off in a historically significant way, probably, around the Balfour Declaration, yes. A man of the British establishment. In 1917, Arthur Balfour was Foreign Secretary, his country fighting the First World War on many fronts, including in what the British called the Holy Land against the Ottoman Turks, when Balfour issued his fateful declaration. His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. The British government wasn't thinking about Arabs when it made that declaration, is the simple truth. It was thinking about its immediate goals for the war, for the aftermath of the more war about propaganda, about rivalry, and also securing for itself a loyal population in Palestine. The Suez Canal, the route to India, the imperial context is terribly important to understand what was happening back then in 1917. Mm. Well, this is probably a good moment to actually talk about what Zionism is and, yeah. and how it's conflated with anti-Semitism. Um, yes. Do you want to start there? Yeah. So on the kind of right wing in terms of discourse there's a conscious project or varying how conscious it is i suppose to conflate anti-semitism uh, which is bigotry around jews as a religion as an ethnicity with anti-zionism which zionism specifically is the support for and the creation of the state of israel as a political project on and in historic palestine and so to conflate those two things like the more left-wing response to that is that in fact it's inverted such that trying to push those two things to being the same thing is actually anti-semitic in itself because you're conflating jewishness as an identity as a religion as an ethnicity with the like with the right-wing political project of a settler colonial state in that region of the world so it's very very controversial on both sides um, it's been historically weaponized against the left very successfully during corbyn which I guess we could even like signpost back to one of our trip to the left episodes. I've actually forgot we did that. Yeah, <laughs> but that was when it was more active. It was uh, here and there, solidarity with Palestine. Yeah, yeah. So and and I guess within that context of what Zionism is and how it gained a legitimacy, like internationally, um, there's there's the relevance of it being a response to the anti-Semitism that 
um, was so pervasive during the period of the Second World War. Yeah. It's like historically going back, the Jews in particular were a religion and an ethnicity which were um, commonly oppressed in all sorts of ways. Um, I think it was particularly bad in Tsarist Russia, which is significant because the Soviet Revolution happens in the same year. And then, I mean, I mean there's so much there, like the conflation later in the Second World War with Jewish Bolshevism being like a particular like bogeyman of the Nazis and the right wing, because like Trotsky was Jewish and Mar oh, of course Marx was Jewish, which is also very significant. <laughs> and I think like one of his parents or grandparents was a rabbi and things, um, and he wrote on the Jewish question. And then there's like a response to it where like they try to paint Bolsheviks as being very anti-Semitic even though like there's excellent speeches from Lenin on anti-Semitism. And so, yeah, so that's, that's like European Jewry was oppressed in all kinds of different ways further back in European history. So, Balfour Declaration 1917, and then Britain ruled Palestine between the 20s and 40s. Yeah, after the Ottoman Empire collapsed, that was the British mandate for Palestine. So Britain's empire, which then was much more active and strong, had control of that region. Um, they were getting lobbied by the Zionist movement that was growing. That was in response, like we said, to being oppressed because of their identity. That They had to try to create a homeland where they were a built-in majority that would never be overturned so that they had safety and security from these threats. And the funny thing is that anti-Semitism is involved in Britain's choice to establish Israel in that the British ruling class felt that too many Jews were immigrating to Britain um, and they wanted them to go somewhere else. <laughs> um, so it's a very strange historical model. And like we were saying, like the Soviet Union supported Israel to various extents, at least during the Stalin period. So it's like geopolitically it's all over the place and it's been very much an open question in lots of different ways. For a long time and so that occupation that that period of britain ruling palestine paved the way to the first nakba in 1948 yeah and, and something that's important to point out for later probably is that when it was palestine historically and even under britain to some extent there was muslims jews christians uh communities all living together without mass unrest and violence between the groups and which and which um the Balfour Declaration came out of which British um cabinet? Which government? And of course, as we all know, it's David Lloyd George. <laughs> <laughs> Seamless edit. Yeah, so David Lloyd George was the Prime Minister and Balfour was a foreign secretary. Balfour was this foreign secretary, yeah. Who uh, I forgot it was in directly writing to the Rothschilds that was giving consent for the establishment of Israel as a Zionist aim. Yeah, and I, th I think the infamous text, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, I think that was written in Tsarist Russia. And that's the origin of a lot of conspiracy theories based around Zionism. And the Rothschilds were a very wealthy banking family that were Jewish, that had a lot of control in different spheres of British society. And also conspiracy theories draw a lot from uh, that period. So the Nakba, which means catastrophe, 
the first Nakba happened in 1948, which saw almost a million Palestinians displaced practically overnight um, and the genocide of over 250 Palestinian villages. The Nakba, the catastrophe in Arabic, took place in Palestine in 1948, in which more than 750,000 Palestinians were forcefully displaced from their homes and pushed into refugee camps in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and neighboring countries. But the Nakba didn't end in 1948. The catastrophe continues to affect more than 12 million Palestinians who remain stateless today. So it's notable that Israel calls that the War of Independence. So it's, it's comparable to other settler colonial projects like the Western kind of, you know, Canada, Australia, US, where they, in order to build a national identity, they felt they had to displace the indigenous people, dehumanize them and kill them on a very large scale. And this was notable in how late it happened historically compared to most of those projects and how suddenly and over like a very particular area that isn't very large because uh, like most of these other ones were kind of done on continental shelves of thousands and thousands of miles. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been listening to various things over the past couple of weeks, especially. And, and um, but we were planning on doing this episode, weren't we, before this had all happened? Yeah, we were going to yeah, we we're going to do Ukraine first and then and then this and then events superseded. Yeah. So we changed course. But when we were planning on doing this soon, I, I was like kind of already listening to different things. And and one of the things that stuck with, from, with me from back during that session of research was stories of, of families that fled during that time who thought they were leaving for a day, for two days. They left their pets behind. They sometimes were leaving, you know, the nanny, like whatever, you know, thinking yeah. they'd see them again in a couple of days. And their food was left on the stove, you know. Oh, God, um, yeah. Lots of people talking about how they thought it would be temporary and they never went back. And some of the families apparently like, still have, like, the keys to their houses and stuff. Um, there's a film on Netflix that uh, is about the Nakba, which I haven't seen, but we should watch, that I think Israel was trying to lobby Netflix to get rid of it because it was humanizing that story on an individual level quite well. Right, okay. Yeah, we should watch that. So yeah, they they, they sort of made refugee camps in, uh, I think there's one called Ada Camp, which was in North Bethlehem, was formed at that time to receive them. And reality was nobody, as I say, nobody did go back. They, they, they never had the right of return. I guess, to do a little bit of the geographic context in terms of people's imagining it? Because the state of historic Palestine is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. In modern terms, uh, it's to the west of Lebanon. And it's quite a small strip of land uh, just adjoining the very northeastern coast of Africa, where Egypt is above Saudi Arabia and on the kind of near west side of the Middle East. Quite a small region of land compared to other nations around it. I guess we said we were going to try and sweep as much as this isn't stuff to be sweeped through. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. So jumping from 1948, unless you've got anything in between, um, I, my sort of next notes are in 1956, which are when Britain and France conspired with Israel in a secret meeting in a Parisian suburb. And the plan was to attack Egypt over its nationalisation of the Suez Canal Company. Ah, uh, yes. That was a, a moment where multiple massacres took place in Gaza and the US actually pressured for a ceasefire purely because they hadn't sanctioned the act. And at that point, they were securing their role as the global hegemon. So 
they for their lack of involvement pressured the ceasefire in in that instance that's interesting because like that's where you start to see the geopolitical relevance of israel to the west and europe and then also the changing role of like the us and everything yeah yeah an article i was reading was talking about how the suez fiasco was one of pivotal importance in making britain behave as the junior partner yes, yes. to america they were, like changing over yeah yeah, yeah. So 1956 uh, on to the 60s, where Britain sold, like this is just a, some useful context in terms of Britain's support for um, the, the project. We, we sold hundreds of centurions, which were British-made battle tanks, and we delivered them between 65 and 67 under Harold Wilson. We're kind of almost glossing over the top of a, a war that took place in June 1967 here. And that was the beginning of the military occupation of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, Gaza and the Golan Heights, which persist to this day. Um, well, there's a British document on Israel that dates from May 68, penned by Michael Stewart, who was the foreign secretary at that point, um, stating that the survival of Israel as a separate state is a fundamental aspect of our Middle East policy. Um, so it's kind of one of the few moments where we get the kind of the mask off um, admission of uh, the role of Israel in the Middle East and yeah. its use. And, and t today it's just kind of very blatant. Like, you know, Biden says that if there was no Israel, we'd have to invent one. And it's the yeah. best investment that the US makes and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But even then it's, it's sort of, I mean, I guess it is mask off in some ways um, because it's being kind of, th those things are being directly being explicit, said. But, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they, they speak of it as the beacon of democracy. Mm. And I mean, come on to the many reasons how that's an absolutely um, crazy thing to, to yeah. say. Yeah. And I guess like the, the, like, um, the wider situation in the world in 68 and especially in May 68 was like the last great on the, on the highest scale period of global upheaval decolonial movements and labor being strong like the, the, lots happening in the world around that time so from there into the 1980s i know we're missing um yeah. lots by by kind of jumping through these days multiple but... wars with like israel's neighbors basically and different things happen yeah yeah exactly but what i've got here is a bit of a patchwork quilt from different articles that i've been reading recently yeah. just to try and run us through the the timeline of um to now and so i mean one of those wars uh with its neighbors um in what happened in 1982 where israel invaded lebanon yeah and i think that's notable because that's uh, one of the first wars that they lost basically and hezbollah which is relevant later as well i think a lot of like their radicalization stuff was when israel had invaded the south of lebanon yeah well they were based they're based in the south of lebanon aren't yeah. they yeah 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 we'll come on to some of those the factions that exist and the different militant groups yeah shortly i think and try and paint that picture as well anything else there because i've got 1987 next i don't think so i think it's just like it starts in 48 very small and then it expands massively around 67 and then it's challenged a bit more regionally around the 80s yeah so then in 1987 the first intifada mm. took place uh, of course also known as the stone intifada yeah because they were like throwing rocks primarily as one of their tactics of resistance mm. and it was shortly after that where hamas was founded yes. by palestinian imam and activist ahmed yassin um, an intifada for reference just means uprising and so yeah so the establishment of hamas is around here then 
Yeah, and the Stone Intifada happened between 87 and 1993. Right. Um, it was in 1993, or at least between 1993 and 1995, where the Oslo Accords were signed. Yeah. Today, the leadership of Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization will sign a declaration of principles on interim Palestinian self-government. It charts a course toward reconciliation between two peoples who have both known the bitterness of exile. Now both pledge to put old sorrows and antagonisms behind them and to work for a shared future shaped by the values of the Torah, the Quran, and the Bible. I mean, I've, I've got some notes on that, but do you have anything in particular that you want to talk about with the Oslo Accords? Um, I guess there's like the, the international context that what the palestinian activists were able to do quite successfully was to keep the palestinian question alive internationally which helped fuel the uh, attempts to create a peace process in a comparable way to the irish republican army in ireland with a successful peace process and i heard it compared to like the kurds for example like kurdish nationalism wasn't really kept alive as a question whereas palestinian was um, and that was a result of some of their tactics during the intifada and things right well it's notable to say that hamas opposed the oslo accords and also the letters of mutual recognition which were exchanged between israel and palestine well the palestine liberation organization um, on the 9th of september 1993 and this process it recognized israel as a state and it recognized palestinians legitimate and political rights while remaining pretty silent on the fate of them after this interim period that it outlined and so it said that there would be a permanent settlement of unresolved issues within five years at the time and it involved the creation of a shared palestinian and israeli running of areas within the state boundaries and yeah it, it was when the establishment of the palestinian national authority as an interim body with limited authority was was created but but it never agreed on several of the many major issues that existed uh, and and still do to this day i mean the borders of a future state the settlements in the west bank palestinian refugees and jerusalem as a capital which is is contended between both it, it left a lot of that unsaid and, and in fact was was quite biased toward the recognition of Israel as a state and functioned more for that and hence the opposition that it faced at the time. Yeah, a lot, lots of you know Palestinians were encouraged at the time by the process, but the reality was it sort of gave a green light to continue the expansion of settlements. Yeah, so the Palestinian Authority, uh, if you want to get some acronyms straight, is like often referred to as the PA and the PLO is the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And yeah, so a lot of this kind of this political space for dissatisfaction with the process and how the um, Palestinian authority that was set up by the accords was seen by a lot of Palestinians as being complicit with Israel and kind of working on their behalf in a lot of ways. Um, the unsuccessfulness of the accords in reaching a two-state solution. This is like the kind of high point of the two-state solution relevance historically. The dissatisfaction with that created the space for groups like Hamas to get more popular support because they were more directly oppositional to Israel, rejected the accords. And a big reason that the accords were so unsuccessful was because of how asymmetrical the power was. So Israel had so much power and they were being supported by so many states with weaponry, funding and just political support that they knew that 
if they just keep expanding their settlements and they just keep pushing the issue that they can have a one state solution ultimately and the palestinians didn't have much leverage so it's those kinds of things like in ireland usually go more successfully when there's two sides that feel quite equal having to give up things mutually so i think that's a big part of that context two positions are formed here in terms of what is recognized as being legitimately israel so like some people um, want to push back israel to its 67 borders and some want to push israel back to its 48 borders in terms of before it was established and so that's part of the contention over the two-state solution what would those borders be at this point palestine isn't a contiguous area it's like broken up into areas that are disconnected from each other geographically which historically can't really function as a state so that was all part of this kind of mess but most people look back at this as the time that there was the most potential for some kind of settlement and since we've moved very very far away from that mostly because israel just continues to push and push and push so this takes us through into the the two the the 2000s the noughties and actually to the second intifada which took place in september 2001 yeah um which you'll see in our upcoming um end of history part one well yeah the video (laughs) the upcoming end of history yeah video trilogy that will be released yeah i guess that so the first one was known as the stone intifada because it was quite rudimentary tactics and the second intifada diversified tactics and made use of like terror attacks which like as a label is very politically specific and charged exactly but there were like suicide bombings there was i think car bombings and things and more militarily organized insurrections and things so a lot more israelis were killed for example in the second intifada than the first yeah have we like spoken enough about the conditions which the palestinians are living in during this history that we're sort of passing through i mean we're talking here about israel's occupation of palestine but in quite abstract terms and the various forms of resistance and wars waged by israel but like what this involves is the creation of the open air prison which the palestinians are now living in to this day in gaza um and like in the enclaves in the west bank and the various security checkpoints and and a regime of apartheid which we haven't mentioned yet (laughs) which apartheid exactly was what i was about to yeah to bring up i mean recently and far too recently in in terms of the reality of what has been the uh, the case for palestinians for decades now and what was recognized by none other than nelson mandela as as being an apartheid state but it was recently recognized by various institutions like the un um amnesty international yeah and it's significant that mandela was imprisoned for terrorism yeah and was considered by the thatcher regime as a terrorist and an enemy yeah so i guess you know i don't want us to kind of not have when talking about these these different forms of resistance that the palestinian people are projecting and the different ways that they have available to them as rudimentary as stones yeah and and more developed tactics that become more extreme they are in the context of an apartheid state which um we will come to talk about in more detail and, Mm. and it's almost it'll be easier for want of a better word to speak about that in current terms as to the current conditions that they're living in because because that way we can be consistent about well just simply the time that we're speaking about and and therefore paint a complete picture rather than one that's that's sort of changing over time but yeah the situation here is you know that that we're talking about an open-air prison Mm -hmm. where people can't leave and which has got 
a border with Egypt, which is closed, and a border with Israel, which is heavily militarized. Yeah, the, in terms of like the specifics around the Gaza Strip, like that's changed and will change with events that will come to in terms of the siege specifically, uh, whether it's actively occupied or, or when Israel withdraw and stuff. But like in general, this is where a Marxist understanding of history is so useful to understanding things, because in a way that non-Marxist historians or just people who are trying to understand these kind of conflicts are kind of perpetually either make it hyper moral and think there's like this evil that's coming from somewhere external or they just don't understand how these things are produced but when you have like a an analysis that's based on material conditions producing the ideas that become dominant in any situation that makes a lot more sense of the kind of radicalisms that are produced in under horrendous conditions for these periods of time and we think of all the changes we've outlined just very briefly there this is all within like one or two generations like the people who were moved out in the Nakba are living like in Gaza um, in the West Bank at this point yeah yeah exactly it's it's sort of only in these recent events that we've been talking about do you reach that second generation of, of people being brought up in these conditions from birth yeah and you know and seeing um, no solutions like seeing every attempted solution failing yeah so the context changes radically between you know from decade to decade and I guess you know as far as this sweeping history um, goes we're kind of getting closer and closer to the current moment i mean after the second intifada in september 2001 and a notable event in 2006 is that hamas uh takes the majority of the plc and replaces fatah yes and it, and in that in that period israel taking actions like a right-wing extremist assassinated one of the prominent israeli politicians who was trying to make progress on this kind of peace settlement after oslo accords and things um so Israel and Israelis were also involved in trying to consciously shut down attempts at a settlement that might be more successful. Or they, there was a kind of, in the same way as like you had the US and ISIS and Al-Qaeda and things radicalizing each other in a way that was mutually beneficial, there was a similar dynamic with Hamas gaining power um, and Israel, the Israeli state becoming increasingly right-wing over time. Yeah, and so after that, taking of the majority by hamas in 2006 yeah so they won the elections yeah in gaza yeah there was a fatah hamas conflict with uh the battle of gaza in 2007 which took place between the 10th and the 15th of june and was centered on a struggle for power after fatah had lost the 2006 election mm. and they were seen as like the more moderate faction So that brings us to the next war that Israel mounts with Lebanon in 2006, uh, notably backed by Tony Blair in the UK, where Blair claimed Israel's soldiers were engaged in an epic struggle between modernity and atavism. Atavism. Yeah. That's modernity and atavism. That's uh, like A-T-O-V. A-T-A-V-I-S-M. The reappearance of a characteristic in an organism after several generations of absence. <laughs> What a strange kind of esoteric thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so then like the wider context in the Middle East in general is like US and UK occupation and various groups in the region being radicalized, all feeding into this modern context. 
that's actually where my um sort of timeline document runs out i don't know um i mean obviously that's only 2006 and lots has happened between then yeah. and 2023 well i think notably it's, it's um 2006 2007 that israel withdraws from the gaza strip from directly occupying it and the sieges strengthened around it and that was the last time that an election was held and that's when hamas uh, got their majority and so the conditions of that siege were that the state of israel has direct control over what goes in and out of gaza and it's basically a giant concentration camp like i that's another one where like the language like even open air prison i saw someone saying that kind of implies some element of criminality uh, which isn't present and the concentration camp is normally not used because of its uh, association with the nazis they also do that in the us in terms of their detention camps and the border and things yeah but the really but the reality of the conditions is that yeah 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 so so with that broad sweep it, it's already started to paint a bit of a picture around the the geopolitics that exists and the the, the different conflicts that have taken place over that time the relations between sort of allied states and states that support the formation of israel and then further support the continued displacement and occupation of palestinian people but there are some sort of specific relationships that it would be good to to go into Mm. um whether it's adversaries or allies and and so where would we want to start with that yeah well i guess a big a big part of the next step regionally is the arab spring in 2011 where basically the dynamic in terms of the population of the Middle East and the regime's ruling class was and somewhat still is that the population have a lot of unbroken solidarity with the Palestinian people um, and directly oppose Israel. And the regimes that were in charge to various degrees at various times fall in line and start to kowtow to Israel because of the international pressure by the United States, sanctioned regimes, kind of geopolitical jockeying different interests. And that was one part of the conditions that produce the Arab Spring, where a lot of Arabic populations deposed their governments and new processes were established and new regimes took hold more and less successfully in different ways. But that's a big next step in the history regionally. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose a parallel conversation for us to continue alongside is one around the factions that existed and continue to exist within Palestine which we've brought up at different points throughout the episode so far with Hamas, with the Palestinian National Authority, with the Palestine Liberation Organization, and then also factions that exist within neighboring states such as Lebanon with Hezbollah, who are currently being spoken about quite a lot. Yeah. But then also, you know, we've already spoken about multiple wars with Lebanon. Yeah. We've got the bombing in Syria yeah. and more. But I yeah, mean, what's the group in Syria? Is it Islamic State? ISIS, yeah. It is ISIS. Yeah. I was always going to say Yeah, it, I know. Because yeah. like, ISIS is so commonly said. I, yeah, know. Know. I know. It feels like we almost want to do a um, like a taxonomy mm. of um, Islamic radical groups. Because yeah. even like the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah kind of all pushed into one network, which doesn't... Yeah, it flattens yeah. something which is really a much more nuanced picture that as we were talking about not long ago with the materialist analysis of what's happening actually provides a huge amount of context to why these groups are formed in the first place it's not that they just appear out of nowhere and that it's like inherent to the religions of the region or that it's inherent to the sort of direction that these peoples were taking 
it's in response to very specific material conditions. Yeah, like a good example is the Mujahideen were armed and funded by the United States to radicalize the local population against the Soviet occupation, which then created the conditions for Al-Qaeda. So it's a similar dynamic, yeah, this kind sure. of back and forth radicalization. Yeah. Another good example I was just thinking of then about like the word jihad in general, very recently that some um, Muslims were chanting jihad on one of the demonstrations and people were reporting it as like terrorist activity. But like, again, like the word jihad just means struggle. And you can have like a personal jihad in terms of how you live your own life, but it's kind of flattened, like you say, and associated with specifically like terrorist activity only. Well, as is the saying Allah Akbar, which means God is great and is a common saying that just has literally been turned into what people see as something that a terrorist says. Yes. And it's purely an alien religion in Arabic saying something which is very comparable to the sorts of things that people of um, Western religion. Yeah, it'd be like, oh my God or something. Yeah. And and this conflation of, of things which are just alien and not known with the propaganda that tells us is something else is really key to a lot of this because i mean that example that you gave there of the mujahideen being funded and turning into the taliban is a good template for lots of things that have happened one of those being israel's propping up and support for uh, hamas yes in the run-up to hamas becoming what it is now yeah and it's a good point that it's like in the areas that you know the least about the propaganda is more and more effective just have like a a general background noise that like this stuff is this stuff but if you if you asked any question you'd be like oh i don't really know yeah you've got nothing else to base your impressions on yeah in those instances it becomes very easy for propaganda to just give you an incorrect framework that then just you unintentionally apply to so many things moving yeah. forward and it's that contextlessness and the, the way the media presents these events without any con- context yeah. coming out of a vacuum that makes people particularly not able to follow it and given the wrong impression and things yeah exactly exactly i mean with things like the current war just reporting on current events in a way that i mean you know it's called that isn't it mm. but when you are purely narrating current events in a way where you obfuscate all of the detail and you simply say this group is doing this to this group i mean and then also ignore a load of other stuff but you don't even provide context to the things you are saying Mm. um it's it's just a whole mess of of misinformation isn't it Mm. so so we have these different radical groups right we have these different radical groups uh we've got hamas who is still the sort of authority within the gaza strip and then in the west bank that isn't the case and notably isn't the case both in terms of the immediate expression of apartheid across the state of israel and in terms of the violence being experienced in the west bank despite not having any presence of hamas and the west bank is uh different to the gaza strip structurally in that it's an occupation directly where israeli settlements are growing and adding new ones to kind of slowly push out the palestinian population rather than this siege which is around the Gaza Strip. Maybe this is a good moment to go through the different regions within Palestine, the different conditions that exist. I mean, there's a tiered 
ID system within Israel, which is policed by the IDF and which is enabled by the fact that Israel controls the registry of people. So the movement of Palestinians and the degree to which they are controlled by the security apparatus is is guided by this ID system, which on the most basic level gives different rights to the different tiers. So, I mean, top level sort of breakdown, but then we should go into it a bit more, Hmm. is you have Jewish Israelis who have full rights as far as rights are concerned within Israel. And then you have Palestinian citizens of Israel who are second-class citizens within the Israeli state. And then you have East Jerusalem, where the residents have a permanent residency status. But the thing is with the permanent residency status is if you leave, you can't come back. And then you have the West Bank, which is under military occupation. And then you have the Gaza Strip, which is under occupation and siege. Yeah. So you've got these different levels. And then, and then you've got the Palestinian refugees who've left and they have no rights whatsoever. Yeah, you have like the Golan Heights, which you mentioned before, across the border in Syria. And then you have just wider kind of diaspora of Palestinians that have moved out to various states and even around the world. In terms of that functioning of that apartheid regime, there's things that you'd compare to either like South Africa or the American South during um, Jim Crow. You know, it's like blacks only things like there's jewish only roads for example there's a whole infrastructure of apartheid and in terms of the significance whites only yeah well depending yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. like talking about that kind of security regime the israeli state is world leading in terms of their information technology their weapons how they surveil citizens and they partly built that on top of the gaza strip because they have a captive population that they can test weapons on test ways of manipulating populations and things which they then sell abroad. And it's part of this modern context of like the uh, Israeli state functions as a Western military base in the middle of the Middle East. Yeah, and, and also um, to the extent that they're known for being the, the technological hub of the Middle East is mm. to the extent that they have these tech companies which are funded often by the state but you can't discern between state run and a private corporation to whether or not they are a function of the state or or actually a private company they Mm. often have um, huge numbers of personnel that previously worked for the idf you know who you can't really tell whether or not they ever stopped and there's these groups like the idf unit 8200 which is a military intelligence unit of the Israeli army known for monitoring Palestinian communication and using that information to blackmail them. And that group um, has carried out cyber attacks on other states and gave birth to the NSO group, which is the private company that is responsible for the Pegasus spyware, which people will probably heard oh, about, yeah. which is used to target dissidents, journalists, activists, and is probably best known as being the software that hacks phones and basically Mm. um, uh, completely track you. This is everywhere. This is an industry that should not exist. We're seeing what the NSO group, which is sort of what the most famous of these guys is up to. Uh, But the NSO group is only one company of many. And if one company smells this bad, what's happening with all the others? I, I mean, when I look at this, what the Pegasus Project has revealed is a sector where their only product are infection vectors, right? They, they don't, um, they're not security products. They're not providing any kind of protection, any kind of prophylactic. They don't make vaccines. The only thing they sell is the virus. Um, and I think saying that they only sell this to government doesn't make that better when you look at who the targets are that we've just been revealing. 
beyond the level of spying that already previously wouldn't have existed. And now they're actually taking control of that phone fully and turning it against the people who bought and paid for it, but no longer truly own it. You can make yourself safer, right? But we will not be safe until we change the game. Yeah, so, so there's a really blurry picture of where the private sector in terms of these huge tech firms that specialize in tech that enables less spying on citizens and then the, the function of the IDF and the state itself in Israel and their use of that software, as you say, kind of using the Gaza Strip as, as, a, as a test bed for this, this software, which is then exported internationally. Yeah, um, and the IDF that stands for the Israeli Defense Forces it, like, it's mandatory conscription in the state of Israel. So you have to do a minimum service if you live in Israel in the IDF. That also kind of reinforces ideological parts. It's one of the most hyper militarized states in the world. The percentage of the population who are in the army, because the population of Israel is not huge, it's like five or six million something. Um, and there's like almost a million people in the IDF. So a huge portion are in the army actively. Part of the international infrastructure is stuff like birthright where international Jews will go to Israel, visit Israel as part of their like growing up and their community. The cultural exports of Israel was all part of this kind of soft power network of influence. And longer ago in the Israeli project, it was a more open question what the kind of political nature of Israel would turn out to be. When we mentioned like the Soviet Union supporting them, like it was an open question whether Israel would be a socialist state. And this thing about kibbutz as communes, as like miniature agrarian kind of commune projects uh i was saying before like really gives an indication of so many contradictions that are at play where there's these communes bordering a concentration camp and people breaking out uh, and violence occurring in those areas yeah and this idea that that's not something to be you know expected isn't the right word but you know um in this recent um attack that took place on october 7th where Hamas broke out and attacked a kibbutz and the Israeli citizens are in reality not safe in the areas that they're in for the very reasons that can be self-evidently explained through the context of what's literally right next to them. It's the same with the music festival as yeah, well. Like exactly. The, the context of that is that is bordering a concentration camp with over 2 million people in, half of which are children, living in 60% plus in poverty, like unemployment levels ridiculously high. Uninhabitable since 2020. Yeah, like 80% are reliant on international aid. And like the music festival is happening just outside that. And the reason that it kind of echoed across the world is because it felt so unexpected to Israel. But that was the context of where they felt so safe was right next to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, just to add to the point of, of it being uninhabitable and stuff, 97% of the water, which in itself is controlled by Israel and up until recently where literally nothing is able to enter and only a few lorries were allowed in, which would stock up your local Tesco in England, you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and there's 2.2 million people, as you say, in, in this region. Like 97% of the water is toxic and oftentimes they're not even receiving it. I mean, now they're not even gaining access to enough water to cook with so these conditions as you say of over 50 percent of the occupants being under the age of 18 the average age of the gaza strip is 18 yeah
Friday, Palestinians gathered for protest as the Israeli-Gaza border as part of the ongoing Great March of Return protests. Paramedics say at least 30 Palestinians were injured by Israeli soldiers during Friday's protests. Israeli soldiers have killed at least 34 Palestinians since the latest wave of protest against Israel's occupation began March 30th. One thing I could do, I don't know if it'll stay in, but one thing I could do is read a quote from the UN Special Rapporteur to Palestinian Occupied Territories, where he speaks of this siege that we've just outlined as being in its current state over the last 16 years. It says, The extent of the devastating impact of Israel's collective punishment policy can be most strikingly seen in its ongoing 13-year-old closure of Gaza, which now suffers from a completely collapsed economy, devastated infrastructure, and a barely functioning social service system. While Israel's justification for imposing the closure on Gaza was to contain Hamas and ensure Israel's security, the actual impact of the closure has been the destruction of Gaza's economy, causing immeasurable suffering to its 2 million inhabitants. Collective punishment has been clearly forbidden under international humanitarian law through Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. No exceptions are permitted. Um, a good um, point of comparison for people who are based in the UK or are familiar with it is that it's very roughly the population of Wales in the area of East London in terms of how many people and how small an area in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, so I guess having spoken in a bit more length now about the Gaza Strip and the conditions of those both within that and then also the other Palestinian communities within occupied Palestine, it could be worth taking a brief step back and looking at the views on that internationally. Yeah, because I guess it's very contentious in terms of left-wing and right-wing accusations of anti-Semitism and stuff, like we were saying earlier. So there's different views on Israel across the political spectrum. So we could try and lay out a few different positions going from left to right or right to left right to left yeah um because you have you have a far right position on israel that is uh the, the anti-semitic far right like neo-nazis and things that are anti-jewish specifically as part of their kind of hierarchy of races who hate israel but they hate it because it's jewish and they hate like jewish power kind of thing and so they hate the state of israel but it's obviously complicated because most of that same far right are also very islamophobic so they kind of don't have like a, a side they support in that conflict as such they just see christian us as being kind of traitors for supporting judaism and things but then you have another far right position that are pro-israeli in the sense of each race having their own homeland so you know i think we've spoken before like the right-wing conception more often like the, their categorizations are based around races quite often whereas like the left wing is based around classes but I mean, there's, there's a really contentious issue around whether Hitler was a Zionist in the sense that at first, at least, he wanted to deport Jews. And this kind of racial hierarchy conception of the world is that each race should have their own homeland, their own ethnostate. And they should all go there and live there. And so like black people in the United States is bad, but they should go back to Africa and there should only be black people in Africa. And so there's like a pro-Zionist right wing racist position that wants all the Jews in Israel um, and supports them being there to like cleanse their own places where they're trying to build ethno states. Then there's like the more mainstream right wing Zionist position that we were alluding to earlier that Israel represents a singularly democratic state in the region. The 
kind of logic that flows from the Holocaust and the Second World War, that they need protection from anything like that happening again, which then gets inverted where it's like, you know, the, the kind of idiom of like never again or never forget. The way it plays out in terms of Zionism is like what that means is never again, specifically the Jews, not like an event like that happening and maybe being perpetrated by a Jewish supremacist movement like Zionism. The centrist, like there's liberal Zionists, the kind of centre and centre-left position is become increasingly untenable because liberal Zionism was much larger political faction in Israel earlier on. Uh, there was even Labour Zionism or left-wing Zionism. And there was like a prime minister who was nominally a socialist, socialist Zionist. Well, as in, in Israel, right? Yeah, yeah, in Israel, yeah. And so like these different international left-wing Zionist positions used to be more congruent, like you could kind of defend them more easily. And then as Israel has become more and more revealed as this kind of pariah state that's drifting more and more rightward and their kind of propaganda machine has like being challenged in different ways, it's very difficult to defend that. And so liberal Zionists, there's a great point somebody made about what modern liberalism is, is like... Was it me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, was that a big motivating factor of modern liberalism is just kind of bearing witness to suffering. So it's like recognising suffering, but kind of not intervening or uh, doing anything. It's like, mm. and this, this happens in the Labour Party a lot, where it's like, we're having really important conversations or... Um, we really, really moved by the suffering that's happening, but like and acting as if you can't do anything, like you don't have any power yourself to intervene in the situation. So this this liberal Zionism is is in decline right now, and it's breaking two different sides. Like they either double down and go to more right wing Zionism, or this increasing movement of uh, anti Zionism is gaining ground. Which when we move further left, the other one is what we more set out earlier on that like the further left position is anti-Zionism and then what kind of settlement flows from that is the question about what kind of state solution would there be but that's the broad camps. So in that context of what you've just described there and the as you say the different state solutions what could the steps beyond that look like it could be worth yeah painting a bit more of a, a picture there on what what the different state solutions are. Yeah so should we go from right to left again to kind of map them onto each other? So the further right position, and then this is more like uh, reflected within Israel, but also outside of Israel, like what's being lobbied for or uh, understood as what the trajectory. So the right wing position is a one state solution, and that one state being Israel, like greater Israel. Yeah. Um, that by whatever means necessary or whatever means possible, the entire region from the river to the sea will become greater Israel. The Palestinians will be moved out or killed a kind of final solution, the controversial language of the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And then with that, which we'll talk about more uh, in the next part, are we referring to parts of that? I think, I think we've started to. Yeah. <laughs> Is this idea of a new state solution that the Palestinians who are currently in Gaza could get pushed out south into the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt um, and that a new Palestinian state could be created outside of historic Palestine and outside of a greater Israel. That's one possible future right moving to the left of that as an option is the two-state solution which we talked about its height being around the oslo accords where people saw a way that that could happen and what kind of we say and we hear in terms of people who share our analysis is that the two-state solution has been dead since then and it's been mostly used as a rhetorical strategy by western politicians to say that they want to support like a peaceful settlement but they won't kind of denounce anything that Israel's doing 
and what Israel has been doing all the while is making sure that that two-state solution is dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in 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 the context of all these different conversations that have happened toward this notion of peace with the Oslo Accords, and then also in subsequent conversations that happened that were revealed in the Palestine papers and and others between authorities within Palestine speaking outside of the knowledge of the Palestinian people and with the state of Israel uh, surrounding what areas will be governed by the Palestinian people and by the Israeli state and in each conversation what happens every time is that Israel not only won't commit to what areas they'll be willing to i mean there is no exchange really that the exchange is always sort of one-sided in that palestinian people give land and the israeli government doesn't but but what they'll always do there is in these conversations where an area is being discussed they're already building settlements and it's the new baseline the new baseline that the next conversation starts from and is it ever changing in that it, they're always pushing further into the territory and you know yeah i mean they're just they're just changing the game every time yeah yeah they call it like facts on the ground that like they'll change the facts on the ground and the conversation will change around it and they'll yeah. just keep doing that that's, yeah. that's leading yeah yeah exactly yeah so then stepping to the left again the idea of a one-state solution once again but this time it being a secular democratic state so it's not based around an ethnic or religious majority. It's not an ethno state. And this is kind of where it's interesting, like of any place in the world today, the way that like a bourgeois liberal democracy would be the most radically progressive settlement yeah, over yeah. current conditions would be that. If you had a if you had a Palestinian liberal democratic secular state that contained Muslims, Christians, Jews, people of different faiths in that area living together like in some ways existed before the whole process of Zionist colonization. Although that seems so far away, this region of the left like sees that that is a lot more possible than the two-state solution. Yeah, yeah. Or a lot less un impossible. <laughs> yeah. And like what that's called and how it functions and stuff is an open question. The the left would mostly rather that be a Palestinian settlement, like it's called Palestine has the same flag, but people can live there and all be represented politically and then the only other position which is relevant for us to mention at least is obviously the no state solution the communist position that ultimately they're contradictions that can only be resolved through the abolishment of the state but like i was saying that's probably least relevant to this region of any potentially yeah as in the journey to that end goal is one that will sort of necessarily pass through Mm. at least one of those other solutions you've just outlined mm. whether it be the one that you outlined prior where it is that it transitions through one state where all of the people um, participate in a bourgeois democracy a capitalist society a, a state of new demarcation or at least of the old demarcation but with all the people that currently reside there taking part equally in a system which resembles that of any system i mean that we're familiar with our yeah. system for example the idea of jumping that stage is mm. nice a nice idea but possibly the least likely of those that we've just outlined mm. and like socialists and communists like all these other groups when it comes to this issue tie themselves in knots and have very controversial debates around this and exactly what relevance that has to this and how it would play out and what's possible and and like you're alluding to it depends on how you conceive of how history unfolds and things yeah yeah 
yeah, I mean, to, to seize the state apparatus and then to uh, move toward it, its um, ultimate demise, its withering away. I mean, the way I'm at least uh, conceiving of it right now would would require a, a state to exist um, <laughs> to to sort of to wither. Um, and at the moment, that that's sort of very much the the, the point in question. The antagonisms yeah. that exist, the contradictions that exist in the current conflict and prior aren't going to sort of necessarily jump to do that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a big conversation and one that the reality of this piece here is is sort of painting a an idea of with this context of the past hundred years and the conditions that the Palestinian people are living in at this point and and for decades prior leading up to and now in this war where the conditions are as you sort of said earlier on in the episode something that we've never seen in our lifetimes and are unimaginable so much so that it's easier to imagine the uh, Israeli side and uh, and that's what our media relies on um, when telling the stories and even if which they don't they they split their time half and half between the two sides it's not representing proportionately the conditions and the the situation that is actually unfolding in the Gaza Strip but also the West Bank and more broadly within this apartheid state and so what we're going to sort of move on to next and what looks like a second part of uh, an episode is the events that have been unfolding in these past couple of weeks and inevitably now over the, the following weeks between now and the point at which the, the episode goes live where these contradictions and these these conditions have, have only uh, become more exaggerated and where at this point the numbers are over 5,000 dead in Gaza and 2,000 plus of those being children. Yeah. And this notion that the war against Hamas has to be waged against all of the Palestinian people and this conflation of the two being a war crime in itself and leading to unimaginable atrocities, which we have escaped having to discuss this time. So... We'll come back soon and and go into those. In the meantime, we'll continue having to store these things in our heads. Yeah. The one thing we didn't mention is Israel has nukes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's throw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Israel has nukes and has the largest military in the world on its side. This could easily flow into the entirety of part two. But yeah, good point and a big point to end on. So thank you to everybody that has listened to part one of this terrible episode and i've been watching for weeks now people uh online sort of having to segue from talking about these these terrible things into please support us and now it's our turn to to say the same because for us to be able to spend as much time as it takes to put these episodes together and for us to have the capacity to be able to keep these things in our heads it's you that makes it possible and we hope that you enjoy the format this format that hasn't quite 
stabilized yet and is continuing to take shape, but which we think is really key to trying to cut through the noise and make sense of both current and historic events and also look to the future and what can what can come next and so if you are interested in helping us continue to make these episodes and our videos that you can find on our website along with details on how to support us then please do head over there Um, it's themoleworld.com and in the meantime you bring the cheese I'll bring the crackers. Hi, I'm Dunya Ashur. I'm 23. I I live in Gaza. We evacuated home um, last week on Friday. I live in Tel Hawa. Uh, I lost my house. My mom lost her workplace. I managed to save my dog, um, but unfortunately, I couldn't save my three cats. Uh, when we came here, we only had my dad's car, so we couldn't uh, take my sister and her husband, so they stayed at home. And we came here. Uh, I don't know, the situation is really bad. There's no water, electricity. I don't eat, so I won't go to the bathroom. Nothing, I, I guess, nothing after this war is the same and I don't know if I'm the next one to to leave, to die. It's really hot in here. We we split. My, my mom and my dad, they sleep in the car. My sister my hus- and her husband sleep here and I sleep in the class. There are um, 30, 30 people in the class. I just want people to know what's, what it's like here. Just keep sharing what it's like here. To know that it's a right to, to resist. And I guess this is how we resist. And it's our land from the river to the sea. Let's not forget.